Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live. This will be the last episode filmed in, in Tucson, Arizona, before we make our way to Texas. I was just catching up with today's guest, Jessica Jones Wilson, AVP of College Advancement at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. And I was sharing with her the big decision we made as a family. If you're watching this on video, you will be seeing Jessica with great lighting and an amazing uh, set of family photos behind her in a uh, move that her family made for the pandemic. So Jessica, welcome and tell us a little bit about your new office setup. Thanks, Brent. Uh, my office was upstairs in our very small cozy house and we decided to take part of our basement and make it into an office. So that's where I am. So it does look like I have great lighting, I, but I have concrete walls and some paint. It's, uh, it's great to see you and I'm glad, you know, we've all had to pivot and make adjustments in, um, in this, uh, you know, period uh, in time. And uh, I'm really excited to hear more about that personally and professionally. Um, one of the things we've been doing to kick off this show uh, is to learn a little bit about who you are, but I like to do that in the context of your own college journey. And I know that your college experience is what sparked your interest in uh, career path and the advancement space. Um, so just tell me a little bit about Jessica, senior year of high school, where should I go to college, Albright College, who was that person and what was that experience like? Oh gosh, that was a really long time ago. Um, senior year of high school, I wanted to go somewhere within driving distance, but long enough, far enough away that my parents couldn't just show up. So I grew up in central Pennsylvania and I went about an hour and 15 minutes away from home at Albright College, small private liberal arts college, like many in Pennsylvania. I needed to do a work study program and I was assigned to the dining hall. And uh, if you've ever met me, I'm not working in the dining hall kind of gal. And so, although I have much respect for everyone who does because it's the hardest job I think on campus. And there was a position as a phone-a-thon caller open. And I thought, gosh, I have no idea what that is, but I love to talk to people. So I signed up for phone-a-thon. I quickly became, um, I, I just enjoyed it so much. I, I love talking to the alumni. I loved talking to the athletes. I love talking to the, the parents. And so, and I was, I thought, gosh, I'm actually really good at this. I ended up as the um, student caller manager and the vice president at the time when I was deciding whether or not to go to graduate school for psychology, he said, you know, this is a career. And I, I actually, it. it had never occurred to me that, oh, right. All these people that work in this building are doing this as a career. <laughs> and so he got out the paper copy of the Chronicle of Higher Ed and circled schools that I and jobs that I would be appropriate for. And that's what led me to my first position at Hollins University. So there's a lot there. I, I am curious. <laughs> we, we have um, uh, this recurring theme of student uh, calling as the, um, I called it the gateway drug to advancement professionals. And um, you started in that regard. Any memorable experiences, good or bad, funny? I mean, I do think at some point we need to create some kind of documentary called student callers where we just, it's like taxi cab confessions meet student calling or something like that. But any like positive or um, oh. I don't know, funny experiences or challenging experiences. Mm. 
so this was back in the day when we would use paper and um, and make notes on them. And so I remember getting my first thousand dollar gift on Phonathon, and that was before. Did you ask they, for it, or did yes, they just I asked for a thousand dollars, and they the alumnus made a gift of a thousand dollars, and that was and we were just being trained up to ask for credit cards over the phone. Um, this was pre-internet, uh, well, not pre-internet, but pre-online uh, giving. And so I asked for the credit card and I had never had a credit card gift over the phone either. And not only did he make a thousand dollar gift, but he also put it on his credit card. So I felt like a million bucks. <laughs> right. Wow. Amazing. Yes. Um, and so <laughs> you mentioned that the the leadership at Albright at the time had um, had really helped you understand this could be a career path. It's not just a student job. And yes. um, and it sounds like uh, that's what led to Hollins. I have to ask, have you ever crossed paths with Tom Chaves from the Albright community? I, of course, I know Tom's name, but I don't know him personally. But yeah. All right. Well, we're going to have to make that connection uh, okay, great. after this. For those listening, uh, Tom has been a great leader in the advancement services world. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually serves as a trustee at Albright. And so we yes. were just catching up recently on oh, some of the work there. Um, but uh, you, you, you made the move to, uh, to Hollins and Hollins had, I mean, tell me a little bit more. Um, clearly, you know, there's always a, a, a transition when you go from selling the mission, um, representing the student voice for Albright with Albright uh, alumni and friends, um, what was it like going to a different university where you really didn't know anything? You didn't know anybody, probably. You didn't really know the culture and the, you know, the inside jokes and all of that. Um, what was that transition like in trying to basically sell the mission of a different institution? You really have me going back in time here, Brent. Um, so Hollins is a women's college. So not only was I going from uh, my own alma mater to, um, to Hollins somewhere different, but I was also going to a women's college and a Southern women's college at, at that. So uh, it took me a little while. Um, it was the most welcoming committee or uh, community that I have experienced though. They wanted me to learn about Hollins and they wanted me to be part of the community. So I took advantage of that. When I moved to Roanoke, Virginia, I actually didn't know a soul. And so I rented an apartment with a 30 day lease and thought if I really hate it, I'll leave. But I was there for seven years. <laughs> and Talk about it, uh the opposite of going all in and burning the ships. You're like, I'm going to do the shortest lease possible just in case. I like it. Right. So, um, but it was fantastic. It was great. And, um, and it ends up that someone that I went to high school with went to Hollins and she lived in, in Roanoke. So I had ended up, I did know someone and I did make some connections. Um, and we had, we had a lot of successes at Hollins too. Yeah, tell me more about that because it was um, it's it's a it's a small community, right? Tight knit community, um, specific identity and brand and culture. Um, but it looks like you were really able to drive some pretty exciting results, at least in the annual fund context, both donors and dollars. Yeah, so we really exceeded a lot of the annual fund goals that we um, that we set out. We, they are really focused on reunions at the time. I'm not sure how focused they are now. I imagine that they are because 
that was really their, their niche there. They were able to bring alumni, alumni back to campus and really celebrate on their reunion years. And so it was a really big opportunity um, for fundraising too. Uh, we had a class, a, a 50th reunion class with 100% participation while I was there. So that was really mm-hmm. fun. The volunteers are really, really engaged and really dedicated to the college um, or university now. They had just changed to university when I started. So that was also an interesting time. We also brought in uh, online giving while I was there. So I remember sitting around the table thinking, I'm not sure people are going to put their credit cards into computers. (laughs) But there were people who believed. And so we went forward with it and here we are. <laughs> Wild. Um, and um, you had a good run there uh, over six years. And then you had a bit of a, a pivot, um, a pause maybe. It was certainly an interesting time. Um, but uh, just tell me a little bit more about uh, you know taking some time outside of the advancement sector and then coming back in, which honestly, I don't think we see all that often. It seems like people either start outside of the sector and come into it, or they um, uh, start in the sector and leave it, uh, mm-hmm. or they start in the sector and they stay in it the whole their whole career. Um, sure. You're one of the few people we've talked to where you were in the sector, you left, you came back. Right. Uh, biggest mistake was leaving. So I I needed to move back to Pennsylvania for some personal family reasons. I moved back and started working in sales. I thought. If, you know, if I can sell someone on feel, good feelings and have them make a gift to the college, I can certainly sell anything, um, which is a great attitude unless you don't believe in the product. And so I didn't believe in what I was doing and I could do it. But you, but working in higher ed and working for a liberal arts college, I actually believe in what I'm doing every day. There's no... There's no downside to my job. I believe in what I'm doing. So as quickly as I could, I got back into higher ed. That's a and super that's- helpful perspective because I know that there are people out there listening, you know, our audience who has thought about that. You know, maybe I should move to the sales world or maybe I can make more money in the sales world. And it doesn't mean you can't or that you shouldn't, but I think your point is well taken, which is if you're going to make that move, serving in a mission-driven um, context like we have here in the advancement space is pretty special, even when it's frustrating and tiring at times. Um, so if you're going to make that move, make sure it's something that you really deeply believe in, not just the paycheck or the change of pace. Absolutely. Absolutely. My job is, I don't want to say it's easy, but it, I'm easily inspired. I, I believe in what we do. Love it. And so that led you to pivot back into the sector joining uh, Gettysburg College, great institution. Tell me about um, that journey. And also, um, you have a, I think, one of the the broadest backgrounds that we've seen, ranging from the student caller to running the annual fund to volunteer management to assistant director of research. Like, that's not the typical move you make and then moving up into prospect research um, ranks. So I'm curious about that transition in general, which, you know, you seem like a very extroverted person. And, um, you know, that isn't all like, that's a big shift, you know, being more internally focused. So what was that like? Um, and also maybe how did your, um, frontline and, and, and broader fundraising experience shape some of your work 
um, as a, a research professional? Yeah, great question. So I am actually not an extrovert. I am a total introvert and doing this even makes me nervous. The thought that my voice is going to be out there for everyone to hear. But um, as an annual fund director, you know everyone. And so you get to know volunteers, you get to know uh, their classmates through the volunteer eyes. And so moving into prospect research, uh, I did a little bit of it at Hollins because I had that experience and we had some leadership changes and I, I was serving in a strange hybrid position there. But at Gettysburg, it was almost a natural place for me to land because I could make connections because I had that front I, I had been front facing and I had, I had seen what kind of information our frontline folks need. And so it was a real, uh, it was an asset for me because I could anticipate what kinds of questions they were going to ask. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I also had a young child at home. So the idea of being on the road or traveling was not appealing to me. So it was a really great, uh, it fit everything that I needed at the time at Gettysburg and, um, and Gettysburg's a great place to work too, so. Tell me a little bit about your view because I think that we see um, a big evolution and shift in the research realm. And I think historically um, it might've been viewed as a fairly reactive part of the org chart, right? I'm going mm -hmm. to go see this person. What do we know about them? Or which of these people should I go see? And I think that we're seeing in part with um, with data and analytics and, um, you know, kind of the next generation of campaign prospects that we're trying to surface, it seems like it's becoming far more proactive, not just, I'm going to see this person, tell me about them. You should go see this person and here's why. And I'm just curious where you were at on that spectrum um, at Gettysburg, if you felt that evolution as well. At Gettysburg, we definitely were trying to move in that direction. That was, gosh, 10, 10 years ago or so. Um, at Dickinson, I can say we are absolutely there. We, the really the only reactive research that we're doing, I would say is for the president or if someone has a lead that, that comes in from, um, from another alumnus or a trustee. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I totally believe in proactive research and getting names out in front of, uh, in front of our gift officers for qualification. So what does that look like? I mean, how does that, how does that, um, what does the process look like when you think about maybe, you know, 10 years ago and more of a reactive context, maybe at Gettysburg and in the sector more broadly, what is proactive research and discovery at Dickinson today? Today, we, um, we do a lot of data mining. So we, uh, for instance, after the revolutionary challenge, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, we had a lot of data. And so we were able to use that data and prioritize who should our gift officers actually go out and qualify for these programs. Let's talk and, exactly about that. Tell me about the okay. revolutionary challenge. We always ask our guests, you know, what's a fundraising um, campaign or, or a gift that you've been a part of that you're really proud of. And um, this is super interesting at Dickinson. Um, real neat opportunity. It looks like at the intersection of, of student impact but also alumni engagement and fundraising top of the pyramid on down. So just set us up for the revolutionary challenge, um, where you're at and then what, what it led to from a proactive discovery perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So the revolutionary challenge in, um, 
So a normal, a traditional campaign, the college, the college or college leadership decides what the funding priorities are. They are go we go out and we test them. We develop white papers. We ask for gifts. Um, in this in this uh, revolutionary challenge, we really flipped that. And so the president went out to our entire constituency, not just internal, but our alumni, our parents, our students, our faculty and our staff, uh, and said, what's the next big thing for Dickinson? And, uh, and honestly, when we were first talking about this, I thought, oh, we'll have, I don't know, eight or 10 big ideas that come back. We had 49. 49 proposals and they came in on, so we launched that in April of 2019. The proposals came in and uh, they went in front of a president's panel on innovation, which were really the top dozen or so thought leaders that are alumni, um, entrepreneurs, college leadership. And we gave them, um, they reviewed them. In addition to that, we put all 49 proposals out on the website and we said, hey, alumni, parent, student, faculty, staff, community, go ahead and vote on these and let us know what you like and what you don't like and leave comments. And again, I thought, oh, we'll have a couple hundred. We had 3,500 alumni log in with, well, with their unique URL and, um, and 5,000 comments and votes. That is invaluable data for us because we now know what everyone is interested in. <laughs> and was that part of the vision for the challenge, or did you just realize along the way if we're going to do all of this, we have to think about things like personal URLs, et cetera, so we can tie it back to a profile so that we can understand in the future which alumni are passionate about the data science initiative? which are more passionate about leadership development. I mean, yeah. how often is that kind of thing being done and the data is not captured? I mean, how many times are alumni surveys done and we're not then getting the survey information back into the system? I mean, there's so many instances. Did you right. luck out? Was this all part of a grand plan? I mean, what's the story? <laughs> we have really, really smart people on our team. And so really, the right people were in the room. So um, our director of prospect management was sitting right there and she's saying, if we're going to do this, I need the information. Um, Who is that? Let's give give that person a shout out. Her name is Nicole Simmons. Well she done, is Nicole. Fantastic. Um, Nicole, she saw it right away that if we're going to do this, I need to be able to, and we're going to, our goal was to be able to put information in front of our president's panel on innovation to say, this is how our alumni are feeling. So we knew we needed some data. We did not anticipate though, having to go through 5,000 answers and comments and questions. Looking back on it now, we probably wouldn't have had just an open field where anybody could write anything because we read all of them. We split them up among our whole staff in order to be able to go through them. Um, but today I can run a report of everyone that liked FarmLab in that first iteration. So it, it's invaluable. And I, we could easily say to our president's panel on innovation, our recent graduates love this and our, uh, our parents love this. 
and our hundred thousand dollar and up prospects love this. Right. And so we were able to really slice and dice that information. So yeah. even though prospect discovery, prospect intelligence was not a core objective of the challenge, the challenge was to engage the community, come up with big ideas, put it in front of the president and the panel and, and make some investments, which it sounds like is going to happen. Mm-hmm. But you were able to do that with a side of massive insights around your constituency. So let's wrap up the challenge and kind of what the outcomes were going from 49 down to, I believe, just a few, uh, maybe a couple funded um, initiatives, kind of where you are on that front. And then once you're able to take a deep breath on the actual challenge, how you were able to dive into that data and start to do some follow-up work. Yeah. So uh, our goal was to do a, an in-person proposal presentation of all four uh, the, the four finalists in May of 2020. We all know what was happening in May of 2020. So we went virtual in October. And so we had about an hour and 15 minute um, virtual presentations, highly produced videos that are, can actually be used by gift officers then on the road. And so it was a dual purpose to be able to say, okay, we have a video now about what farm could look like or what future lab could look like. And, um, and so that after following that, we also did another round of voting. And so the voting was a little less on that about just over a thousand votes uh, among the four. But again, we collected more data on what folks are interested in. And, uh, and now we've built out four pyramids so we can see where our prospects fall on and who's interested in what. We also, uh, two of the proposals are moving forward immediately without, um, without any hesitation, two of them. Two of them need a little bit more work on them. So, but we're able to roll out the first two right away. So mm-hmm. we are in, I would call it phase two. I guess we're kind of sunsetting the revolutionary challenge and we're on to the next phase, which is funding the proposals. So um, yeah, so we're really excited about it. And So you talked about, I mean, I love the way that you described, you had four kind of finalist initiatives, you got a thousand votes, uh, two, one, and they're being funded, but you built four pyramids. I want to talk more mm-hmm. about that because I feel like what you're describing is a real, it's a cousin of crowdfunding, right? Crowdfunding has become really popular, right? Instead of generic um, unrestricted support, this nebulous thing, it's now let, let's opt, let you opt in from a menu of choices to what you really care about. You did the same process, except instead of asking for money, you asked for votes. And I think what you're demonstrating though, is that votes or money can both be a signal of engagement and interest and votes, I mean, you could have just said, hey, look, we did the revolutionary challenge. We went from 49, 3,500 votes to four, 1,000 votes. We got a winner. It's a cool program. And I feel like that's the way that a lot of crowdfunding is being operated today, which is we did all these campaigns. A bunch of people donated. The students got $12,000. Great. And I think one of the biggest gaps right now is we're not creating the post-campaign pyramid using that data, whether it's a vote or whether it's a gift. And so just tell me a little bit about the voting pyramid, what that looks like, what that might entail going forward. And I'd also welcome your thoughts on how do we just make this a part of advancement in general, whether it's a vote or 
a gift or a Facebook like or whatever it may be, how do we go from engagement to pyramid? That's a great, wow. That, if I had that solution, I would be a, a millionaire. Um, I would write a couple books on it. We're working our, we're doing our very best at doing that. So as far as the votes and the pyramid go, um, all of that data is collected. So, and it is connected to our internal ratings. So if, if someone um, voted for one of the two or actually one of the other 45 that were not selected, that information is in there. So for instance, if we were to do, I don't know, there were some renovations that were suggested for instance on campus and uh, through the revolutionary challenge. So as soon as we're ready to do those renovations on campus, we already have, we already know based on voting who our be the beginning of our pyramid is. So if, if we want to renovate, you know, building XYZ, we can go in and pull the revolutionary challenge votes where someone suggested that we do that revolution, th that renovation. So I feel like we're really ahead of the game as far as that goes. The other two, so um, data analytics and uh, farm lab are, are the two that are moving forward immediately, uh, as immediately as possible given funding. Yep. The other two will be funded eventually. They just need some internal work to make sure that we're ready internally for them. So we'll continue to work on all four of them as we go forward. The other 45 were great ideas. And so my guess is that we're not going to let go of all of them either. And as we continue on, I, my vision is that we won't we won't ever have a traditional campaign again. It will be this kind of, someone once described it as a train car. I don't love that, but adding one more campaign on as needs come up and as, as people are getting excited about programs. I mean, this world is changing so rapidly that trying to, to plan a campaign for the next five to seven years based on something that we knew a year ago, oh my gosh, where would we be right now? So totally. we've Have been you able heard um, uh, John Morris, who is the, uh, he's been uh, leading development at Kansas State and he's now gonna take over as SVP of advancement at, um, at Auburn University. He coined the phrase capital sprint and this idea you know, aligned with what you're saying, which is how could we possibly know 10 years from now, what impact we need to make, what, society needs from us as an institution, we're fooling ourselves. Like think about 10 years ago to today, think about 10 months ago to today. And so um, he calls it a capital sprint. It sounds aligned with what you're talking about. Have you seen, I mean, this is your point of view, but is this kind of the, the growing sentiment maybe among your network in the advancement space or at Dickinson specifically? Definitely at Dickinson. I think that we're all ready for it. Um, the only thing that I can say that we will always be raising money for is scholarship. And so, um, you know, today, tomorrow, 10 years, 20 years from now, I imagine that we'll always be needing scholarship. But other than that, I think that Dickinson is ready to be on the cutting edge and making sure that we're raising money for the things that are going to move the college forward quickly. Can you, can you tell me about the collaboration and partnership between this approach and the frontline staff? Because I could see some people being maybe a little skeptical, like, wait, Jessica, you're telling me because they voted in this online challenge that I should now go qualify them for this area? I mean, are they, are they 
kind of jumping at that or did it require some education or maybe it's more case by case? Maybe we are completely spoiled at Dickinson, but we have the best frontline fundraisers who were really part of it from the beginning. So they were encouraging their portfolio prospects to vote. First, they were encouraging them to submit ideas. Then wow. they were encouraging them to vote. Then they were doing follow-up. Um, so to, they're, we're spoiled, I guess, because they are all over it. So Brian Falk is the other AVP, and he has really set a great example for his gift officers to say, this is your opportunity. Get out there. And maybe one of your prospects, their, their idea will move forward. And so, and we've seen that where there are prospects that want to get involved and now they're part of the implementation team. So um, what a great way to just close the loop, right? From um, conception of concept. um, And also what a great way for the frontline staff to engage somebody in a non-direct solicitation manner, right? uh, Whether it's stewarding existing supporters or just having like a fun, relevant conversation, new material to work with, frankly, they had to really um, appreciate that. I hope so. And they've been really, they've done so well. They've been really fantastic. Uh, and again, they, our job, I guess, is to make their job easy, right? Give them everything that we possibly can so that they can go out and, and engage our alumni. And this was a really fantastic opportunity for that. You also commented in advance of this, um, recording that um, when you want to feel inspired and you've already talked about, you know, the lack of inspiration, maybe in the sales experience that you had, but when you want to feel inspired, um, you look to your students. And I'm just curious, like sometimes there, um, we talk about donors, we talk about dollars, we talk about, you know, impact, but that can be a degree or two of separation away from that specific student who's a sophomore, who's like, having a better experience, having their life changed, how do you kind of work that student um, culture and voice into um, the advancement organization uh, at Dickinson? This is another thing that I'm incredibly proud of. Um, We implemented last summer because we had nothing else going on with the Revolutionary Challenge. uh, We implemented a student discovery initiative, which um, we hired about close to 30 students We called them presidential fellows. Everything looks like, this is the secret of advancement, right? It looked like it was coming out of the president's office. The president, I'm doing air quotes for those of you that can't see me. The president sent uh, our students out, um, they sent them home for the summer and the students interviewed alumni where they lived. And so that was the summer of 2019. We had over 800 alumni interviews and so much great feedback from our alumni. Oh my gosh, we love talking to students. Folks that we as gift officers and advancement staff has never been able, you know, we can't touch them. They won't pick up the phone or return an email. Our students then got got this experience making warm phone calls, learning from our alumni and engaging with them. We did it again this summer, all virtual. And so the virtual space actually opened up a whole new door for us because we were able to reach people not just where our students lived. And so, you know, someone who lives in Iowa didn't have a student call them in 2019, but they did in 2020. 
And so there were over 1300 interviews done by wow. students. And of course we are data collectors. So we have all of that too. So I can tell you a an alumnus who had a great Greek experience and one that didn't. Right. Or one that thinks our communication is great and one that doesn't. Um, so we collected all of that information also. And so those so, student so, interviews. So it's almost like in 2019, you created a traveling phone-a-thon, except <laughs> instead of asking yep. for a gift, you were asking for uh, a conversation. And yep. you were able to scale that again last year. And I think that you're highlighting something that has always been, frankly, mind-boggling to me and our team, which is when you think about how many students callers are having conversations in a given year, how much valuable information is being shared and how little of that, if any, is actually making it back into systems. I mean, it's such a missed opportunity and you're taking something that has historically been, let's be honest, purely transactional. I mean, we talk about this being a relationship business. There is not relationships being developed in the old way of doing it. And I'm just curious, like it, it almost sounds like you'd rather have the data and the conversation than the $50 donation. And, and I mean, ideally you could get both, but I'm just curious like what your kind of reflection is having served as a student caller yourself, now thinking about students being kind of this ambassador team, engaging people, collecting information, but not soliciting somebody on that first conversation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, would I rather the 50, I want the $50 eventually, I'll be honest with you, but I don't need it on that first phone call. We have engaged and I'm, I'm anxious to run the actual data after um, we're working on it right now. And our goal is to have it wrapped up. But the first year we learned so much about our alumni and things that they're passionate about and reasons they're not giving. One of the questions that we asked, that we asked during the interview was what, do you hope never changes about Dickinson? And so that is such a, um, that's so powerful to us because we know it with solicitations that that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Can what, you tell me okay. more about the other questions that were asked? I mean, how, <laughs> how scripted was it? Um, it sounds like you were able to really have a common set of questions, which then I'm sure yeah. makes it easier from a data collection perspective to load things in and so forth. But what was the script? Uh, the script had about 30 questions and yes, okay. it was a script. We gave all of our students iPads and, uh, our IT staff at Dickinson is the best I've ever worked with. And they developed an app so that students could literally type in questions, type in the answers. And then it's loaded into our system for us to analyze the data. Um, so the questions ranged from, you know, what was what professors inspired you to what um, what do you hope doesn't change about Dickinson to uh, tell us your career story to do you read the magazine? I, I, it was really broad. Um, we didn't talk about giving, but we did talk about what organizations are you involved in? So it's there's over 90% of our alumni interviewed volunteer somewhere. And so that was really telling, like we have really philanthropic, maybe, maybe we don't know about gifts, but we have really philanthropic, good hearted alumni. And so there is hope out there for us. We just have to figure out the right way into, into that. Um, so where do you volunteer? Are you on any boards that kind of information that's invaluable for us as, uh, 
researchers and gift officers and, and our team internally. Our students then were able to have, um, we always said, leave some time for alumni to ask you questions. And so alumni always had questions for our students. We're growing the program this year and that our returning callers were offering them the opportunity to do the follow-up. So we always said, one of the questions is, is there any department on campus that you wanna hear from or learn more about? That would come back to our office and we would do the follow-up internally. We're actually going to let our students do it. That's also part of the Grow Your Own Advancement Officer program that I dream of. So we're going to let them do it too and hopefully develop some relationships with some of the alumni that we have. Jessica, this is so interesting. And for everybody listening, it's just one of the, I think, um, new approaches that would have made sense pre-pandemic, the post-pandemic, I don't understand how you couldn't do. Everybody listening, you have a student, you have a list of people let the student schedule Zoom calls, give them a script, get it into the database, create your conversation pyramid afterwards and figure out a plan for the people that are willing to um, to engage. I think that is reflective of the future of the phonathon moving away from something so transactional into something that is the beginning of a relationship. And I think you're going to be able to find ways to get to have a real relationship, which is going to make getting the gift easier, which is going to make, you know, the follow-up and stewardship, I think far more compelling for everybody. So, you know, having a team of 30 students is incredible. You said you're going to grow it. I want to know more about that and how you fund it and all of that, but everybody could start with one student right now. Do it. Do it. I mean, we give a little cachet to it by calling it presidential fellows. The president hosted an event for them we wanted the best and brightest. We are really lucky in that sense that we're able to do that. I would hire a hundred students though. I mean, if they caught for a whole summer program for 1300 interviews, they cost less than half of what a gift officer costs us. So it's the value is there. and, And the students are able to have conversations that are alumni aren't, or that our gift officers aren't necessarily able to have with alumni. Alumni will share so much with students and they, I love the emails that we get back from our alumni about how our students, uh, how our students interviewed. We've also taken the opportunity just to do professional development with them, like write a thank you note. Yes. Here's your business cards, your thank you notes. Here's how you make a warm call. It's and, awesome. and think our about, students don't talk on the phone very often either. So this is a skill that we really are, we're practicing, right? How to, how to talk on the phone with someone. So it's really mutually beneficial for everyone. And what an incredible thing to have in your resume. I mean, think about how they're going to be able to speak to this experience with future employers, whether they want to do sales or customer success or marketing or you name it or if they want to become future advancement professionals, which it sounds like you've got your eye on at least one or two future Jessica's in that group. Is that fair? I do. Absolutely. I won't <laughs> ask you to name names because we might come after them, but uh, <laughs> I like it. Um, all right. Well, I want to be sensitive of time as we start to wrap up here, but um, I did just kind of want to get your perspective on one last topic that you'd highlighted and we've already spoken to it in a certain regard, but this idea of um, budget relieving fundraising 
mm. being a thing of the past and really moving more into impact. And we just interviewed uh, um, Mark Barnes, who's the VP of Advancement at uh, Dillard um, University in New Orleans. And he had the exact same comment in regards to some very high impact student specific fundraising they did that not only increased revenue, but it increased, um, uh, it, it, it really increased um, gift volume as well. Just tell me your perspective on budget relieving versus impact um, and why you think this is the future. Yeah, gone are the days of the unicorns who will just send over their dollars and, uh, or they are unicorns now, gone are those days where the college is just trusted with uh, unrestricted budget relieving dollars. We haven't 100% made that turn, but we are really exploring where within our budget relieving world can we really show impact and make impact. Um, and that's something that we work on all the time, but that's really where the future is. Our donors tell us, I don't want to give to the, the black hole. And they've actually been saying that for all of my years doing this, you know, 25 years later, and people still don't, they want to know where their money is going. They're getting much more savvy now because that's the, you know, the water well is the best story where you can see where your money is going, or you get a, a note from the child that you have supported, or you see your gifts at your child's school doing something. And so we have to get better at that. So that is, that's our main focus. Retention and showing impact are our two focuses this year. Yeah, you just hinted at something that that uh, Dr. Barnes spoke about as well, which is um, if you can find something at the intersection of budget relief and impact, that's a really good place to start. And their specific yeah. example was a program they developed to help students that basically had outstanding balances their senior year that were at risk of not being able to walk or get their degree because they still owed $2,500 and they weren't able to um, scrape together that money. And they went out with a campaign basically saying, hey, Jessica, hey, Brent, you can help this student earn the right to a degree. Here's their story. They're owing $2,000. Can you step up and fill that gap? And like that is so much higher impact, more emotional. It allowed people to stretch and make that, that gift to solve the problem. And it's also budget relieving. And I think those are examples where what are those intersection points where maybe it is a part of the black hole but if you can reposition it as an impact story, you can kind of get the best of both worlds, solve a, a problem, inspire the donors, you know, help the students more directly. So I'm curious just your reflection on that and if there are other kind of budget relieving impact areas that are of interest to you right now or to your team. Yeah, the black hole. So it's not a black hole to us, right? We know exactly where it's going, but it appears to be the black hole to our, our donors. I love that idea. I love that story of impact for students. Um, we rely, we lean in heavily to scholarship. That's something really important to Dickinson. And that is budget relieving. We will have, we have an insatiable need for scholarships. Um, we have, we found success with the emergency relief, re emergency response fund last year that we put together as budget relieving. So um, we never anticipated that we would still be in this. So we still, we continue to put the emergency response fund out front. Um, and so we, we had great success with that. Um, internships, 
that's another place where we really, we need to focus more. There, there's untapped uh, opportunity there in my mind for internships. That's where our, especially the internships, if a student is unpaid, for example, but really wants to have an internship, but understands this is going to be an unpaid situation, why can't we pay them? And so that's really where we want to be, that our students are able to get the opportunities that they want or need, and they don't have to worry about how much it costs or what they're going to be losing or where they're going to be living for the summer. So that might all change in this virtual world with virtual internships, but but we still don't want someone to work at the mall when because they need to be paid when they could have an internship and we could we could uh, underwrite that for them yeah and i think for you know um first of all i think the virtual opportunities are going to create access to internships for companies that otherwise it might have not been feasible um i also think that there's such an opportunity you know let's say that now I am going to support a student who wants to do an unpaid internship with some kind of scholarship. Um, I feel like the future of that stewardship experience could be so different, right? Whether it's that student then sending me a video um, summarizing their summer experience or scheduling a Zoom call, or maybe the donor relations team is now helping facilitate those one-to-one -one conversations. So it's not, you know, dear first name, you know, thank you for supporting the scholarship that helps our students. But like, it helped Brent and here's Brent and we want you to have a conversation and it's sort of lower cost, more personal than trying to get everybody together to have the scholarship luncheon um, and something that we can maybe scale, you know, much more broadly, um, even if donors don't live close enough to campus to come back for that luncheon. Exactly. Oh, scholarship luncheon, my favorite event. And we're rethinking it this year because we can't have it. So I don't know what it's gonna look like, but I'm anxious to make some decisions. Um, and we are, we are talking about exactly that. How do we get our top scholarship donors in a room yeah, like yeah. we normally would in a virtual space with their recipient? I mean, can't we do like big Zoom kickoff with like 500 breakout rooms. I don't know what the limits are, but you know, how <laughs> granular could you get in the sort of, we're going to have this overall conversation, you know, share the broad impact. And for the first time ever, you are all going to be able to, you know, go and break, break out with your student. I mean, how cool would that be? That, that is a dream. That's a dream yeah, for yeah. us. Um, and I, we are risk takers and we, we think we start really big at Dickinson. And then we see where we end up. So we start really big, just like that. So um, yeah, I love it. You know. Yeah, as a, as a disclaimer to everybody listening, Evertrue does not work with Dickinson. And now <laughs> I really, really extra want to. So we're going to work on that. But uh -huh. uh, it, uh, it is super fun. I mean, you, you, you did describe your staff as innovative, risk-taking, and fun, um, which are fun. great. Yeah, tell me more about that. Why do you say that? My staff, uh, so March 17th, March 16th was our last day in the office. And on the 17th, I put a, I posed a question of the day thinking this will last, you know, two weeks. And we still have a question of the day and there are activities of the day. There are, uh, wear your Dickinson gear, wear your crazy hat, 
Um, tell us your, what you wanted to be when you grew up, you know, when you were a kid, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Tell us anything. Um, they're engaged. They're fun. Most people gave up on that about five weeks into the pandemic. So I commend you. This is remarkable. What are the top questions of the day that everybody needs to copy and steal? Oh gosh. I wish that I had written them all down at this point. Um, the photos that come in, I mean, we also have a teens channel on your dog, on your pets at home which is really popular. Um, probably the, anything to do with food, you know, what, what, what are you making? What's your best recipe? So anything to do with food, any funny childhood stories, what's your most embarrassing childhood memory? Um, who was your favorite teacher was really popular. And that really got people inspired to think back on their teachers. Um, and so you're I'm not recording just... all of the responses in your database? Oh, yes. This is very out of character. <laughs> Actually, it's all in our team. So you could go back and read all of it. Um, it's really fun, though. It's really, really fun. We just have a really creative, innovative team of people who all want, I mean, to a person, I would say everyone wants Dickinson to be successful. So, of course, we have, you know, rough days, but it doesn't take much to be re-inspired so this is uh i feel re-inspired and um it's really great catching up with you you're not hiring currently as many of us navigate uh budget uh freezes etc but um for people who want to stay in touch with you what's the best way to do that um jessica to the extent that opportunities do open back up in the coming months sure probably my linkedin or feel free to email me wilsonje at dickinson.edu Awesome. Jessica, it's been such a great conversation. Thank you for the positivity and good vibes on this Friday uh, in January as we record this. Um, I wish you nothing but the best um, as we all navigate this. And uh, with that, I'm going to sign off with Jessica Jones-Wilson, AVP of College Advancement at Dickinson. Thank you. Thank you.